0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 58. Last, we ended with new Batavian Republic Governor Janssen's meeting in what was a gathering of equals. A treaty was signed, but it was limited. Ngika would accept the Amakosa boundary of the Fish River, although, as we know, many Ararabe Amakosa, including those led by Ntlambe, were living west of the river and refusing to accept both the Dutch and Ngika's rule. Inrika also asked Janssens to assist in this ongoing war with Klumby, and the governor reluctantly agreed, but not much happened about that, at least immediately. When he left, Janssens handed a number of presents to the Amatoza chief, including a suit of European clothes, replete with military hat bedecked with feathers and a cockade. Nguika <sniffs> squeezed into the outfit, and his people let out many exclamations of astonishment and admiration, according to Henry Lichtenstein who was documenting the visit to the Zürfeld. Janssens also gave Nika woven cloth mantles, a horse with an ornamental saddle and a bridle and a two-wheeled carriage. While this was going on, there was a war breaking out once more in Europe between England and France. For on the 18th of May, 1803, ten days after Janssens had reached Algoa Bay, on his long journey overland to the frontier from Cape Town, Malta in the Mediterranean became a flashpoint. This little island was the first step on a Mediterranean passage from Europe to India as far as both Napoleon and the British were concerned. Under the Treaty of Amiens, Britain undertook to hand Malta back to the Knights of St John, who had ruled it before Napoleon and the British began fighting over it. But then the British had a change of heart as they watched Napoleon continue to consolidate control over Europe. The Batavian Republic was virtually his vassal state. English Prime Minister Pitt had vacillated over the Cape's return to the Dutch. Now he was convinced it had been a mistake, as war clouds gathered once more. Napoleon had also begun his plan for the reconquest of the vital region around Egypt, and Pitt knew he needed to control Malta as a strategic island which would indirectly secure Egypt and the Levant. On the 13th of March, Napoleon had a violent confrontation with a British ambassador on the status of Malta, and that decided it in his mind. It was time to attack the British base there. Back in England, the cabinet met to decide how to respond, and war was the inevitable result. Holland was compelled to support the French. So the news of war reached Jansen's as he travelled about the Zürfeld in South Africa. He cut short his trek into the hinterland and hurried back to Cape Town to undertake an improvement of the Cape defences. After all, it was only a matter of time before the British showed up again he thought. He was right. It was the third time in a quarter of a century that the Cape found itself glued to telescopes watching the seaward horizons for a sign of a British fleet. They needn't have rushed around, however, as Janssen's was going to wait another two years before the English pitched up in Table Bay. London was too preoccupied with issues in Europe and the possible invasion of England by the French to worry about little old Cape Town at this moment. Napoleon was also too busy with his northern hemisphere planning to bother with the southern tip of Africa, and this provided the Batavians with some breathing space. As historian Eric Walker notes, the period of indirect rule by the Batavian Republic is one of the more tantalizing in South African history. Some regard it as a kind of dawn of the Golden Age, all too soon overcast by the second coming of the British. The reason is pretty simple. The Batavians wanted the Cape to be a permanent place of itself, so to speak, rather than a thing dangling at the end of a colonial master. Janssen's issued an up declaration where he wanted reforms, which, to the ears of the colonists, were pure-blooded revolution. They planned a permanent stewardship for nearly three years, prepared a frontier policy which they believed would ensure peace in the long term, and rested on two pretty old-fashioned principles. The first was the eviction of the Amakosa from the Zuurveld. Then, once that was achieved, a total ban on relations between the Amakosa and the colonists across the Great Fish River. Now, there wasn't anything new in that policy. The only difference was Jansen's and his sidekick, Demist, were going to enforce it. This fascination with enforcing separation of the lives of the whites and the black population nearby is a constant theme running through South Africa's history. The consciousness of Many, many political leaders starting from this period and running all the way through to even today is profound. So, Jansen's planned a rigorous and systematic process which would be driven by his professional army based in Algoa Bay. It was primarily the thoughts of the intellectual commissioner general de Mist who took over from Jansen's in the Zürfeld, and it was he who formulated this policy. Jansen's was back on the peninsula checking his cannons and planning his defences, as De Mist headed off to the Zurfeld to try and enforce the separation policy that had started with Jan van Riebeck. The cheapest way of avoiding trouble between the colonists and the indigenous inhabitants appeared to be freezing all contact between the two, Whereas the preceding 150 years or more had been characterized by an anarchy on the frontier, De Mist was determined that the Batavians would bring proper control to the region. He wanted a solid border that was respected by all parties. However, the basis of Cape rule in the eastern frontier was in Hrafrenet, which is 260 kilometers or 160 miles or so from Algoa Bay. Locating the Eastern Frontier Administration that far away from the Zutfeld, when the Zutfeld was the biggest problem, didn't make sense, so De Mist naturally scoured the coast for a better and a more local post. The spot he chose was 20 miles from Algoa Bay at a place he called Eitenhacher or Jutenhage, if you like. It was part of his family name, after all. Relations between the administration and the Amakosa were to be the exclusive concern of the new Landros based at Jutenhage. And this man was Ludwig Alberti, who ended up writing a remarkable set of documents describing pre-colonial Amakosa society. Later, he was to say these three years were the happiest of his life. By creating a new centre in Jutenhag, the Batavians shifted the political and military administration of the frontier towards the coast from the interior. Of course, the administration of the region remains centred on the coast at a place called Quebec, or formerly Port Elizabeth to this day and that's thanks to Meneer de Mist. Graf importance was diminished as the Batavians began to plan their sweep of the zoo field, to clear it of Ntlambe and other Amakkoza rebels. In reality, all this was to stimulate another war with the Rarabe Amakkoza, who were bristling with any suggestion that they be moved from what they saw as their ancestral territory. The Batavians also set up a chain of military forts along the Great Fish River to act as border posts, and to enforce Amatosa and Trekboa's separation completely. The Khoikhoi were classified as part of the Cape Colony, and they were given what could be called honorary white status. They would also be banned from trading with Amatosa, and they could not even enter the region east of the Great Fish like the Trekboers. And the Trekboers were told there would be no more crossing the Great Fish River to shoot down elephant and rhino, which was their annual pastime. And instead of vague mentions of the price to pay for ignoring these orders, severe punishment, including the death penalty, would be enforced. The trekboers found themselves rigidly controlled along this frontier for the first time. But the Batavians didn't stop there. No, they also announced that the ill treatment by the trekboers of the Khoikhoi would lead to repercussions, including being banished. That's a lot of talk thought the Boers, let's see the walk. Juttenhag was a new beginning. Its military power emanated from the 150 Valdek Company troops residing at Fort Frederick on the shores of Algoa Bay. The sea link with Cape Town was also crucial, allowing more troops to be quickly rushed up the coast to deploy should more uprisings take place. The historic laissez-faire lifestyle on the frontier was finished. The Batavians wanted the region to prosper along the lines of the Enlightenment Harmony must be created and troubles suppressed. Civilization was coming, and they were the harbingers. It appears that the new Landrost Alberti was a master of what could be called game scenario, in business terms. His policy was to maintain a balance of fear between Nika and the Zurfeld Amatcosa, knowing that there was no way he could enforce law without the Amatcosa believing there would be some intervention. That was psychological warfare. The Batavians were thin on the ground, but Alberti somehow convinced those in the Zürfeld that at any point Inglika would arrive to join the Valdics and then attack Inglambi, which kept Inglambi quiet for some time, believing that he could be overcome at any moment. Alberti admitted this as he wrote later, It was essential not to betray any weakness for not immediately driving the displaced horde from the colony. By horde he meant Inglambi's people. And to conceal the real reason from them as well as from Kaika, his gamesmanship worked. In Tungwa, and other Amakosa chiefs in the zoo felt bent over backwards to stop cattle rustling and they even returned stolen beasts so fearful were they of a joint Dutch, Ngoyka and Tak. The fact that De Mist was trying to separate black and white but was going to deploy blacks with whites or Ngoyka's Amakosa against his own people alongside the Dutch soldiers, didn't seem to be a contradiction for the Batavians. Back in Cape Town, the government was rearranged and the High Court radically overhauled. Master Gardiner Duckett, who remained in the Cape after the British left, retained his position. Shockingly, Janssens then reduced his own salary to something that was more reasonable considering the limited economy of the Cape. The new administration announced the High Court would deploy seven professional lawyers along with an attorney general as public prosecutor in place of the fiscal. South Africa's steady march towards some kind of advanced justice system was in its infancy and its cornerstone was laid at this moment. De Mist also created a sixth magistracy, Tilbach, which was part of the northwestern portion of the huge Stellenbosch district and extended its border to the Zak River. We'll hear more about the Zuck River, which is a fascinating stretch of the Cape, and missionaries were highly active here, much to the disappointment of the colonists, as you're going to hear. Another change he instituted was communication. Demas set up a weekly postal system between all the Drostis. His other changes were to lay the groundwork for the upcoming Treka republics. The Landrost was to represent the administrative authority of the central government in his district, where... The Landrost exercised quasi-judicial powers by taking criminal depositions and metering out punishment to slaves and settling petty criminal charges out of court. In civil cases, the Landrost was to be assisted by six unpaid himraden in the usual fashion, but his biggest change was with regard to humble and lowly officials. The Feldwachtsmeester accumulated civil in addition to his military duties. His name would change to Feldkornet, something which continued all the way through until the dawn of the 20th century and beyond in some places. The Landros would recommend and the governor would appoint one such official for each ward, which was defined as a six-hour ride in diameter that would be a district. The fell cornets or field cornets would keep the peace and settle petty quarrels. They would take the census, publish laws and act as guides to those of their ward. They were regarded as men of all work, like Tudor-era justices, and awarded with prestige, freedom from taxation, a free farm, or a small salary, and some political power. De Mist did have a spark of the visionary about him because he saw the value of sheep and imported Spanish merino lambs, which Julie bred mightily. But in spite of the cloth samples that the Batavians developed in Cape Town, the farmers were an obstinate lot and stuck to their fat-tailed sheep instead. They still couldn't improve the quality of Cape wines, though, except for Constantia, and olive trees were not managing to bear fruit out of their due season. The true value of Cape will was only to be realised much later, after the British began their rule of South Africa. The Batavians lacked cash for their dream colony, and they also lacked labour but both the Mist and Jansens believed they could replace the odious legacy of slavery with paid workers. The reality was somewhat different. Slavery was at the heart of the society, and these men and women meant it was feasible for local farmers to remain financially viable. While it is true that the flow of slaves into the Cape had slowed to almost zero by 1803, immigration from Europe continued. The immigrants, however, were not interested in becoming laborers. The Batavians wanted to segregate slaves into what they called the Reserves, and the rest of the colony would be settled with paid European labor. Grand vision! Fatal illusion. Demist fought regularly with local colonists when it came to slavery, but over time Janssens became a little more forgiving of the white demands that slave imports continue. A few Demist experiments failed, such as at Plattenburg Bay, where an enthusiastic Hollander called Gijsbert van Hoogendorp had set up his farm on modern principles there in 1803, then tried to entice other Dutch trekboers to join him, but failed. That was before another man who was more successful, Gibbon Wakefield, whose tale we'll pick up in an episode or three. Another you're going to hear from is someone called George Rex, who settled at a place on the southeastern coast that would be called George. In matters religion, there was much muttering as there always is when change is afoot. The Dutch Reformed clergy of the day were rather apathetic, but ruled the Nachtmahl or the communion process. All shops closed on Friday night, and the Dutch Reformed ministers were jealous of their rights. Anglican clergy were allowed to use the Grote Kerk on special occasions in Cape Town, while Muslims were not, but they were allowed to worship in their own private rooms. The Lutherans were going to be offered their own church in Cape Town, but the Dutch reformed ministers, butted still louder. They viscerally hated the Lutherans more than the Catholics or even the Muslims. There was a lot of bickering over the mixed marriages at this point, and by mixed, I'm not talking about black and white, but reformed versus Lutheran. The congregation of the Hritte Kerk was obstinately determined that the Lutherans should not build their own church, one spire was enough, they said. Being members of the Enlightenment, Dumist and Jansens decreed eventually that equal protection of the law to all communities worshipping a supreme being for the promotion of virtue and good morals. They then immediately allowed Roman Catholics to celebrate Mass in the castle, but still not the Grote Kerk. Trying to change a culture can be tiring, and in September 1804, The mist resigned, leaving Governor Janssen's on his own. Other radical social changes were being enforced. The Landrosts and Himraden were allowed to solemnize civil marriages, not just the Prédicants, a la français, and the new Board of Education met to organize public schools free from clerical control. This, of course, horrified the previous generations of Dutch descendants who knew of education only through the church and religion and drove the Dutch Reformed dominies to distraction. It was then that the new Batavian administration bumped into the other growing power in southern Africa, the missionaries. The Batavians obviously believed in religious liberty and did not prescribe narrow exclusiveness of the evangelical way to salvation. Allowing Catholics and Lutherans to worship freely caused a scandal. A shaking, shivering fear rustled through the established Reformed Church hedgerow. Another source of ecclesiastical tension was the London Missionary Society. In a nutshell, the Batavians began to regard the society as a bunch of wells. Our friend Johann Theodorus von der Kemp was still living in Bethelstorp in Algoa Bay. And the new LMS missionary Reed was there too, and both were regarded with displeasure by the Batavians. Not because they were of a particular religious order, no, because the Batavians thought that the Khoikhoi may be led astray, nay, even radicalized by these missionaries. It's a small world, they say, even smaller back in 1803, because van de Kemp was known by de Mist. In fact, they both had attended Leiden University in Holland at the same time. Parabaccini, who was the colonial secretary, was related to von der Kemp by marriage, nohow, and it was Parabaccini who wrote in a shocked tone of voice. His abode is a miserable little hut of mud and reeds. The only furniture I saw were two low bedsteads made of skins of cattle stretched across frames. I found the old man lying on one of these beds under a covering of sheepskins sewn together and wearing only a rough blue striped linen shirt. A coarse woolen jacket and trousers. But Van Kemp was a hardy type, and Baravacini continued, The task of bringing lost fellow beings to Christendom had been laid upon him from heaven, he assured me, and he would fulfil it to the end of his days. As he would, as you will hear. The Batavians thought that the missionaries were giving the koi, koi an excuse to work less by ordering them to pray more. Less time on your knees, please, more time labouring, seemed to be the message from the Batavians. Liechtenstein thought so too. So, for all their high-minded plans and their manual of how to deal with savages and other theoretical concepts, in the end the Batavians found their ideals of the Enlightenment conflicted with the realities of Southern Africa. These Koi, koi and Amakosa lifestyles were an antithesis to their own, so they faced a dilemma of principle. Despite de Jansen's Janssen's belief in free religious worship, they didn't think the Khoikhoi deserved that freedom, but should really all go back to the farms and work for the Trekkboers. The missionaries at Bethelsdorf became a focus for the frustration as they tried to get the frontier back to work. On one hand, the Batavians abhorred slavery, and on the other, they knew the frontier depended on it. The Boer sons and daughters refused point-blank to do rough manual labor, and the Khoikhoi remained the obvious alternative labour east of the Cape along the frontiers. In this zone, the Boers were also too poor to pay for labour, and thus their economic existence was dependent on Khoi and Khoisan slaves, particularly so because the Batavians had forbidden the use of the Amatosa. Relations between the Batavians and the missionaries were going to get a lot worse within a year, and of course the British were now eyeing the Cape at the same time. Eventually, Van der Kemp would come to the conclusion, which was accurate, that the Batavians were collaborating in the suppression of Khoikhoi freedom, and that Ludwig Alberti, the commander of the frontier, was forcibly driving them to work for the Boers. Van der Kemp was to pen a letter to Janssens where he said that the government was treating the Khoikhoi worse than Pharaoh did the children of Israel in Egypt, and thus the perennial debate in South Africa began, about who was the Pharaoh, who were the Egyptians, and who were the chosen children of Israel. Was it the Boers? Was it the Amatosa and Khoikhoi, Or was it the coming flood of English speakers from Britain? We will see. With that quaint Old Testament biblical thought, it's time to end this episode. Next week, we'll rejoin the frontiers of Southern Africa, as well as we'll hear more about the international events that continue to wash up against the region. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. To contact me, you can head off to my website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com and email me there. Or direct message me on Twitter at deslatham. Until next, tootsies.